Well, once again, welcome to Lynchburg City Church. My name is Joe. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I'm glad that you guys can be here tonight. We are in the book of Malachi, and I know some of you are new. Um, some of you are forgetful like me, so what I like to do is kind of do a, a recap, kind of like on TV shows where the last episode was to be continued. I like to kind of do like last time in Malachi type of thing. So last time in Malachi, this is what you need to know about Malachi. Uh, his name literally means my messenger. And he writes the story sometime around the year 460 B.C. They have just come out of Babylonian captivity. And now they are under Persian rule. The Persians are the superpower of the day. And the people of Judah, who have returned out of captivity, things aren't going so well for them. In fact, most of this story is... Essentially, in verse 2 of chapter 1, God's saying, listen, I love you guys. And then the whole and the rest of it saying, but I'm really upset with you. I'm really mad at you because you guys are dropping the ball like crazy. And as we saw last week, we looked at verse 17. And I'll just remind you that um, none of these verses stand alone. These verses are part of an overarching story within this book. And so last week, we looked at verse 17. It said, you have wearied the Lord with your words. This is verse 17, chapter 2. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? So last week, Malachi says something that was kind of strange, like you've wearied God, but God, he never sleeps nor slumbers. How does he get wearied? Like, God isn't the slightest bit taxed at all, but Malachi says that he's weary. That was a strange thing that introduced what is known as the doctrine of impassibility. See, if something is impassable, it is incapable of experiencing emotions or sufferings. And so many people will adamantly argue for the doctrine of impassibility because if God could experience emotions or sufferings, that means that he could possibly be swayed by such things to act contrary to his will. But yet Malachi says that God's been wearied. Furthermore, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18 says that Christ suffered. Genesis 6, 6 says that God's creation, it grieved him, his heart because of their wickedness. So how do we reconcile these two things? Well, if words mean anything, which I usually think they do, then it would stand to reason that God can and does experience emotions. But in what way and to what extent? Well, as we said last week, God can experience emotions. God can experience sufferings. But even his emotions and his suffering is not identical to human emotions or sufferings. Uh, For example, because God knows all things, he can never truly be caught off guard. He can never really experience anxiety um, because he knows all things. God experiences grief as humans experience grief, but even his grief, it's not identical to our grief because God is able to see both the end and the beginning simultaneously. Oftentimes when we're going through something really hard like grief, something's tough has happened, it's really tough because that grief just kind of laps all around us. We, we can imagine what tomorrow looks like. We can be hopeful of what next week looks like, but it's difficult. God sees both the beginning and the end simultaneously. After all, he wrote the script. So that being said, even his emotions are not identical to ours. So how do we make sense of this where it says that he was wearied? Well, as we said last week, oftentimes we say that um, the human beings are 
controlled by their emotions. Well, we're emotional creatures. Um, we'll say, that person, man, they're really controlled by their emotions. Well, to a greater or lesser extent, we all are. We all are to a lesser or greater extent. And so what we saw last week is where humans, the process looks like this, and I would categorize it in three stages. A human being experiences the experience and the emotions. They're tied together. That gives birth to a will, which gives birth to action. So experience and emotion gives birth to will, gives birth to action. This might look like a lot of different things. Let's say you're at 1971 University Boulevard. So you're like, that sounds really familiar right now. <laughs> so there you are. You're walking down 1971 University Boulevard, and you see this very, like I said last week, this very attractive person, and you're like, wow, something happens inside of you. The emotions, like that experience of seeing them gives birth to the will, uh, which is like, hey, I want to talk to them, and you go introduce yourself to them, and hopefully you, you don't crash and burn. Sometimes it happens. We live and we learn. But God, as we saw last week, is different. Human action always comes from human emotion and experience. Ultimately, that's its source. But divine action is not identical. See, divine action ultimately is birthed out of divine will, where it's divine will, divine emotion, divine action. You say, well, what's the point? As we saw last week, the point is this. The point is that while God does experience emotions, he's not controlled by them. And that's really good. For those of you, you had earthly fathers. I used this illustration last week. Maybe like you, like me, you never knew if dad was going to be nice. Am I, am I going to get nice dad? Am I going to get mean dad? How's that going to work out today? You'd walk around on eggshells. If, if, if you don't want to upset him, what type of mood is he in? God's not like that. See, God loves you because God's willed to love you. God loves you not because you had a good week or a bad week. God wills to love you. Therefore, he loves you. And that is really important in those moments where you feel like you can't go before God because, oh man, I can't read my Bible right now. I can't go to God in prayer. I, I can't talk to him. He's not going to want to listen to me. Oh, no, that's, that's not true at all. People of Judah, you've wearied God. But he still loves you. He loves you, not because you're perfect. Oh, man, you're dropping the ball like crazy. He loves you because he's willed to love you. And I think that really takes a burden, takes a lot of pressure off of us knowing that you have a heavenly father who is saying, just come, just come, come. And so that definitely segues into where we're at today in chapter 3, verse 1. That was like last week's sermon, but that was like the, the, the four or five minute version of it. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, chapter 3, verse 1 is a really busy verse. There is a lot of things going on in chapter 3, verse 1. Probably the biggest challenge that we have is trying to discover who the agents are involved in verse 1, like who the characters are and what role are they playing. There's some ambiguity when we first look at it. We look and we see, all right, well, who is this my messenger dude? And then you think, oh, wait, I remember in the introduction, 460 BC, Persian control, Malachi's name means my messenger. And his little bells are going off. You're like, all right, fill in the blank. But before you do that, I am going to suggest that Malachi is not actually referring to himself for a couple reasons. 
and I'm going to do my best to present those to you and make my case. And if I'm not, well, then don't believe me. Malachi's name does mean my messenger, but the sense in which verse 1 is used, as well as the following verses, seems to indicate this future event that hasn't yet taken place. I believe that what we see here in verse 1, in the ESV commentary, the ESV study Bible had a good commentary on that, is almost this foreshadowing. Malachi's name is being used here in this almost play on words as my messenger, and I see Malachi's own ministry is almost this foreshadowing of the preparation that was intended of this future messenger. I'm going to argue that this is not Malachi that he is referring to himself, but someone else. And ultimately, I'm thankful for passages that interpret other passages. And there is such a passage that interprets this so we can discover who the identity is of this agent, of this character, of the my messenger. So what I would tell you to do is, we're going to come right back here, but flip over a few pages to the 11th chapter of Matthew. And Matthew, in chapter 11, um, I'm going to start reading in verse 7. He's going to actually have a direct quote from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And in Matthew chapter 11, it's the book that comes right after Malachi, he's, Jesus has just talked about this guy John the Baptist and how he's a really big deal. And he says this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind, perhaps? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, a prophet. And I tell you, more than just a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. And here's the direct quote from Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus says, there is no one born of woman greater than John. John's a big deal. Because Jesus says he is. And then he says, and I'm telling you, that he is Elijah who was to come. If you have ears, then hear. The people expected the literal Elijah to come. John was his own man. John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And he came to prepare the way for the Messiah. The my messenger, the first agent here, 
is speaking of this Elijah who was to come, fulfilled in the person of John the Baptist. And his purpose was to prepare for the Messiah's coming. The second agent, pretty obvious, it says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And here's the third agent, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The messenger of the covenant and my messenger, their identities are different. They are not the same person. And I am going to argue that the identity of the messenger of the covenant is the identity of the second agent mentioned, that is, the Lord himself. In the Old Testament, there, is, there are some Old Testament passages which are rather, how do I say, mysterious, in that, which, in that when God and his unique angel messengers are spoken of, they are spoken of as if they are one and the same. If you've taken Old Testament, maybe you've heard that, that little catchphrase, angel of the Lord, is often spoken of as if it is the Lord himself. And I am arguing that that is what's happening here. I'm also arguing on the grounds of what I would call, what is called, poetic parallelism. Poetic parallelism is what you have two lines, and they essentially state the same thing. They just use different words to do it. So if we go back to the text, we see it says... Therefore, the Lord whom you seek is the same person as the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. They have the Lord whom you seek and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. And I would say that would be the case in point example of poetic parallelism in which two lines are expressing the same idea, just using different words. And so we now have the three agents involved here in verse 1. But perhaps the most interesting thing is where he uses this word delight. And I actually did this in my Bible, I'll show you. The word delight is used here in verse 17, and then there's delight that's used here in chapter 3, verse 1. And I actually underlined both of those, and I drew an arrow connecting them, because I want to show you something that I think is really interesting. The people, back in verse 17, have been talking garbage and nonsense and saying things that just are ridiculous. Look back at verse 17. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Well, that's not true. But the people are angry, they're frustrated, they're mad. And so that's what they're saying. God delights in those who do evil. Mm, no, but that's how they feel. They're frustrated. And when you get frustrated and angry, you oftentimes say things that aren't true at all. The interesting thing is, is here in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, And the messenger of the covenant, that is, the Lord himself, in whom you delight. You catch that? This, this verse could be expressed like this. The messenger of the covenant in whom you claim to delight in. It could just as easily be expressed in that way. Then the messenger of the covenant that is the Lord himself in whom you claim to delight in. And I say claim to delight in because one verse earlier, they're saying garbage. They're talking nonsense. They are wearying the Lord. Everyone who does evil is good in the eyes of the Lord and God delights in them. And then one verse later, we delight 
and the messenger of the covenant, that is the Lord himself. What? Doesn't make any sense. And yet that happens quite a bit. People say, oh, I love God when a minute earlier, one verse earlier, here's the people of Judah saying, God delights in those who do evil. What? And so I would ask you this question. I would say, are you like them? Are you like them? You say that you love the Lord. You say that you delight in the Lord. You say that he's the biggest, he's the best, he's the most wonderful thing, and yet, wait, yesterday, just yesterday you were saying and doing things completely contrary to what you're now saying. What? Are you like them? You say that you love God, and yet earlier this week, how you were acting and the very things you were saying are not reflective of someone who delights in God. They claim to delight in Him. Yet one verse earlier, they are saying things they have no business saying. And this is, I think, so paramount today. Because we live in a world in which many people I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. That's what they'll say. I'm a Christian, right? I mean, it's, as soon as someone starts running for a political office, I'm a Christian. Okay, I'm a Christian, yeah. Why? Because that's, that's what you do when you run for a political office. Um, I'm a Christian. That's how, that's how we identify. And here's the reality. And I love Titus 1.16. It's my go-to verse. Because I come across a lot of people today, and they say that they love God, and ultimately, as Paul says in Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but they deny God by their actions. And I say this because I don't want to... I would rather you feel kind of weird right now or awkward or uncomfortable and really consider and examine your own life to say, am I actually like those people of Judah? I'm saying one thing one time about me loving and delighting in God, and yet... What things I say and how I act is completely contrary to someone who is a Christian. Because the reality is, according to Matthew 7 and Luke 6, that many people will be caught off guard and surprised when they stand before the creator of the universe one day and they think, yeah, I'm a Christian, yeah. As soon as I die, I get to be with Jesus. And they'll stand there before him and they'll be like, hey, Lord. And he says, why do you call me Lord? Away from me, I never knew you. And they are cast into hell for all of eternity. Are you like these people? Are you like them? And I, I would draw a difference because I think there's a difference between someone who is fighting sin, struggling against sin, battling sin, and someone who, yeah, they feel bad when they do things, but ultimately, whatever. Need I remind you of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 7? Godly grief produces repentance. Godly grief produces repentance. Repentance, that's where you cry after the pastor yells and you feel really bad and you say you're sorry. No! It's an about face, as we say in the army. It's a 180 degree turn. It's a, it's a change. It's this turning. 
Are you like them? I don't know. Verse 2 says this, But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Verse 1, it says, He's coming! He is coming! Verse 2, the result of the coming. The result, twofold. Purification and destruction. Verse 1, He's coming. Verse 2, it explains the result of the coming. And he is described as this refiner's fire and this fuller's soap. Fire's use for purification does overlap with destruction because as you purify something, you are destroying the undesirable parts. And so this verse definitely has in mind the idea of a purification, of a refining, but it also has in mind judgment. And that is clear by the phrase, who can endure and who can stand. And by verse 5, it says, so I will come near for you for judgment. It is a scary thing to be in a place where things between you and God are not right. It's a scary place to be in that type of position because the implied answer that we don't get to quite yet is that nobody stands before Him. No one can endure. I mean, I, I stood there one night. I don't know what time it is. It was late one night. It was really dark at NTC. And I'm talking to this one soldier um, in one of my downtrace companies. And I just remember looking at him. Because I know this. I know that nobody can stand. I know that nobody can endure. And I'm looking at him. And I just spent the last 30 minutes like sharing the gospel, talking to him, back and forth conversation. And I just said, dude, I said, I care about you. I love you, dude. And I don't want you to go to hell. I said, I don't want you to go to hell. Because I know that no one can stand, no one can endure his judgment when it comes. And so... Verse 2, it shows us the result of His coming. Twofold, purification and judgment. And then it continues. And it makes this comment about Fuller's soap. And in the Old Testament, washing was this continual reminder, like scrubbing yourself down. Maybe some of you guys did that today. Maybe some of you guys should have done that today. Washing in the Old Testament was this kind of illustration. Uh, it was this constant reminder of the separation between a holy God and sinful man. And unfortunately, over time, it became a substitute for it. In this legalistic, twisted way that you would need to wash yourself. It was once used to serve as this imagery, this illustration, this need for God, His holiness, our sinfulness, and it evolved over time to be this substitute for it. These verses, what they do, they're promising a time of judgment when the Lord would come, but also a time where He would come and He would purify and He would remove all the dirt and all the garbage in His people's lives. A cleansing that ultimately is accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived the life we could not live. He died the death we should have died. He paid the price we could not afford to pay. 
And so there's this imagery, this fuller soap of this washing, which, as I said, was initially there to serve as this illustration, as this reminder, God is holy, man is sinful. And man is in need of cleansing. And so verse 3 continues uh, some more imagery, and it says, He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. They're going to bring offerings of righteousness. And when they do, verse 4, those offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing. As in the days of old. As in former years. Verse 1, he's coming. Verse 2, here's the result. And whereas verse 2 talks about the unpleasantness of this process, of the refining, of the purifying, of the chiseling, of the judgment, verse 3 we see the attentiveness of the divine artist. We see God sitting there at work, crafting and chiseling and refining and pulling away the garbage of his people. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. As one commentator says, God's refining of his people always involves a concrete goal or purpose. Cleansing and purification Something precious will result from this process. It, it, it mentions here the people of Levi, and, and this comes back, and if you've been here with us through our time studying the story, you remember that they are playing an important role in this story. Unfortunately, it's not the role that I would want to play. But what's been taking place is that the people have been, here's an overarching theme of Malachi, they've been offering religious activity to God in replace of authentic worship. And, and that doesn't work. Like There is no substitute for authentic worship, and religious activity doesn't cut it. And so what's happening when he talks about Levi here, he's holding them, it seems, to be chief responsible for the actions of the people. Well, the people are going to be held accountable too. But see, what's going on is, they're bringing gifts to God. And when you bring gifts to God, you should probably bring your, okay, your best. But they're not doing that. In fact, they don't really care at all whether they bring their best. So the people are bringing these offerings, these gifts to, the, uh, gifts to God. They should be bringing their best. And here this guy comes. He walks up his little sheep, his little lamb, and it's like missing a leg. And the priest, instead of saying, dude, what are you doing, man? You can't give that to God. That's not your best. He says, eh, sure, why not? Go ahead. Next. Is that, is that a lie? Yeah, he's just sleeping right now. Huh. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, go for it. Knock yourself out. The priests aren't doing their job. And the people aren't giving their best to God. They're going through the motions. It's like, oh, check, 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 check. Got it? All right, now I'm good to go. And God, he's furious. He's upset. The reference to Levi here and the sons of Levi being purified, that's overarching. That's what's happening here. 
They're, they're checking the box. They're going through the motions, doing the religious church thing, right? So I can text mom and be like, yeah, I, got, I went to church, mom, get off my back. And uh, that's just as true today and just as much of a problem today as it was here in 460 B.C. Right? Man, some of you are like sitting here and you're like, uh, the only, I'm here because one of my friends, like, they, they dragged me to church tonight. Um, honestly, I do enough church. I go to Combo three days a week. I got this and this and this. I'm good to go. That used to be my mindset, right? Like, hey, I, I don't want to get involved in the local church. I don't care about these things. I'm doing enough. I go to Combo three days a week, right? I read my Bible on my own time. I don't need, I don't need anything else. I'm good. I'm, I, I've, I've done that. I've checked that box. Huh. I remember learning somewhere huh, here in Malachi that religious activity is no substitute for authentic worship. God wants your best. God wants to be the number one priority in your life. And he will not settle for number two or number three or, okay, he's number one priority right now, but, oh, okay, I got a date tonight or I got this thing going on or this thing going on or this thing, so I'm going to just shuffle him down here, swap him out of the way, and then I'll swap him back. He will not play number two to anything or anyone idle in your life. There is no amount of religious activity that can be like, okay, well, we're good now. Because I, I've done that part. He loves his people, but he is furious with them. And I think the important thing that you see in this imagery here, I think there's an important comparison, especially in light of Jeremiah 2.22. And I'll read the verse. You can write the reference down. But Jeremiah 2.22 says this, Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. You wash, you scrub, you do the right things, and yet the stain of the guilt is still there. The process that is mentioned here, this refining fire, this fuller soap, this divine artist who will sit and refine and purify like silver, the sons of Levi, refine them like gold. This is not a process of self-purification. Bless you. <laughs> it's not. This is not a process of self-purification. This is not uh, like a self-improvement thing, like, okay, six easy steps to bring authentic worship to God. It's not that. That's not what's taking place here. The Lord does the purifying. If right worship is to happen, if authentic worship is to happen, the Lord must do the purifying. The Lord must do the purifying. And this has so many applications to our lives today. <clears throat> There's like two categories of people probably in here. There's those of you that aren't Christians, or you're just Christians in name only, really. Like, you think that you are a Christian because you know some information about God, and that's it. But you've never really, you've never really, you, you, you place your faith in him, but you've never submitted to his lordship. And many times people say, well, 
I got to take care of some other stuff and then, then I'll get there, right? I got some other stuff to work on, then I'll submit to his lordship, all right? And then there's other people in here who are constantly trying to go around and just fix everyone else. <clears throat> He's coming, verse 1. Verse 2, the result. Verse 3, the imagery of this divine artist doing the purification and the result of that of him purifying the sons of Levi, the result of that is that then they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. They've been bringing offerings, just not one coming from a heart of worship. Just checking the box, just going through the motion. See, it's not self-improvement or self-purification. It's not you fixing you. It's him fixing you. It's not you fixing you, it's him fixing you. Like, you don't clean yourself up and then say, look at me, God! Because that doesn't glorify him. That glorifies you. That makes much of you. See, the people, they've done the religious things, but their heart was far from him. And some of you in here, you need to stop trying to fix everything. He purifies, He refines, He washes, He grants you a heart of repentance, He causes you to walk up righteously. He does it. You don't do it. That is the message of the gospel. Like the message of the gospel is that you suck. And that He comes and He cleans you up. Completely different from every other world religion which says you need to do this and do this and fix yourself and make yourself right before the deity. Not Christianity. Christianity says, you can't. You've got so much garbage, so much ugly filth, and you can't get rid of it. You can scrub and you can clean, as the prophet Jeremiah says in 2.22, but you can't remove it. This doesn't, of course, this doesn't negate human responsibility. This doesn't negate repentance. It doesn't negate either one of those. And so the situation described here will only be reversed by the Lord's purifying work. It's not about self-improvement. It's not about self-purification. The artist, he refines. The artist, he purifies. He fixes. This is about God doing what only God can do. Why is that? Well, one, because he's God. And as the author, Paul, tells us in Colossians chapter 1, it's because he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is before all things. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is preeminent. Only God can fix you. Only God can make you new. Only God can change your desires. Where some of you sit here, and you don't really love God. You don't really love His Word, the Bible. You don't really love His people, the church. And yet you think you can somehow please Him by doing religious activity, by checking the box. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel at all. The gospel is Jesus doing for us what only Jesus can do. 
It's not about you going around trying to fix every single person and every single problem in their life. Which is why when I was at National Training Center, I was talking to one of the other dudes from my downtrace companies. And I told him, listen, it doesn't matter what I say. I could give you the most compelling argument. I could give you all the evidence that you wanted. But unless God draws you to himself, it doesn't matter because my words will fall on deaf ears. I mean, the Pharisees had every reason to believe, and even when they had overwhelming proof of who he was, instead of bowing to him and submitting to him as Lord and Savior, they said, uh, 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 how do we make sense of this? Uh, well, I don't know. I got, we'll, we'll tell him that, that he's doing this through the power of Beelzebul. power of Beelzebul. That's how he's able to do all these legit, amazing, awesome things that only God could do. And that's what I told the soldier. I said, unless God draws you, I think there is coming to a point in your life and just saying, okay, you got my attention. I can't do this, and I need you to do it. Whether it's in your life or whether it's in the life of someone else. That's the gospel. As the band comes, I'd like to pray right now. God, we love you. You are a good God. And I... I would ask that you would help the people in here to see some awfully big things. To see that you're the one that fixes us. The people of Judah, you love them. You're mad at them, you love them. They're not bringing you authentic worship. They're going through the motions. They're, they're faking it until they make it. And I don't know if that hits home with anybody in here tonight, but I pray that if there's people in here tonight, that you would, one, give them a sense, those who love you, a sense of relief knowing that they don't have to fix every other person in their life, that you fix them, that that, that burden would be removed. And for those of us in here tonight, Maybe some of us are sitting here thinking, I don't even know if I really know you, God, in a saving way, that you would grant those people a heart of repentance, even right now, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to know you in a saving way, that you might change their desires, that you might refine and purify them so that they can bring you true worship. God, you are glorious, you are majestic, you are awesome, you are wondrous. And we love you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.